Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast, where today we are discussing all about the sacroiliac, or SI, joint with Mark Laslett. Mark is a registered specialist physiotherapist who's been practicing for over 50 years all the way across the other side of the world in New Zealand. He's travelled and lectured extensively and it's a real privilege to have the chance to speak to him. We chat all about the SI joint, an area which is frequently misdiagnosed and even confused as an area of pain in many people with lower back pain. We discuss how much force is actually needed to injure it and what type of injuries can happen to it, how would you know if you have hurt it, and then importantly, how you can treat it. Now, this was a fascinating chat, and I really did learn a lot, so I hope that you do too. This week is my birthday, so I'd like to ask you a favour. If you have benefited from listening to the show, please share it. That means pinging it to a few other friends in a WhatsApp group or taking a screenshot and posting it on your Instagram stories. Remember to tag us at The Back Pain Podcast. It means the world to us and really helps us grow. Thank you to all who do this regularly. But for now, that's it from me. Hope you enjoy this episode. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the latest episode of The Back Pain Podcast. And welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast, where today we are discussing all about the sacroiliac joint with Mark Laslett. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Fantastic. So let's jump straight into it. You know, people have heard of the sacroiliac joint. What exactly is the SI joint, the sacroiliac joint? What is it? Where is it? Tell us all about that. It's a joint in the pelvis. It's the joint between the bottom of the spine and the big flaring bones that that's uh, associated with your hips and buttocks, and um, and so the the, the flaring bones called the ilium, and the sacrum is the bottom of the spine, and that's why it's called the sacroiliac joint. Okay, so those are the bits around the back, kind of left and right, the kind of knobbly bits on the on on the back of the no, on the base the of the spine. Bits are what are, are just the bone. The joint is a lot deeper than that. It's actually in the center of the body. It's not at the back at all. Okay. And so it's right around there. And then what does it do, the sacroiliac joint? Does it move? Does it load? What's its kind of major, major functions? It differs from most other joints in as much that it doesn't, it's not there primarily to allow you to bend and flex in any direction. Uh, unlike an elbow or a shoulder, which has muscles that specifically move the joint, the sacroiliac joint doesn't have any muscles that move it. The muscles that have any effect or do have effect on the sacroiliac joint actually cause it to clamp together. To, to, it's called form closure, to actually clamp it together. So there's no muscles that actually move it. The amount of movement in the sacroiliac joint is tiny. It's um, in the vicinity of about two and a half degrees of total rotation. That's about it. And um, and so it's it's actually really, really hard to determine. So uh, how much movement is there? It requires very highly sophisticated X-ray technology to do that. So uh, it's not a, it's not primarily a movement joint. It is a, it is like a joint that allows um, force to be transferred from the limb to the spine with a sort of a shock absorbing function um, between those two things. So that um, so that it's, it's like it's like a, it's like a shock absorber perhaps. 
that might be the best way to describe it, rather than a moving joint. Okay. So you say it kind of closes and that the muscles around it, you know, give that form closure of, of the joint. When does that happen? Is that when we're moving, when we're walking, when, you know, when it's the shock absorber? When does that happen in, in daily life? It's, it's below the level of consciousness. You don't actively choose to close that joint. It's when muscles contract, when you move your, um, your trunk, those muscles that clamp those bones together do that automatically below the level of your conscious uh, will, if you like. So um, and so, that's a that's that's a sort of a um, a learned um, subconscious activity. Um, like when you swallow, you don't think of the muscles all the way down your esophagus, down into your stomach, taking that peristalsis of food down your gullet. It just happens because that's what we're built to do. It's very very similar in the sacroiliac joint. The muscles that uh, help to support or stabilize, I should say, that joint. Um, act in an automatic fashion. And so it does that when we have to transfer load from our upper body to our lower body or it stabilizes? Certain muscles contract in a certain way and hold that part together. When you take the transfer to the other side, it's it's an automatically adjusting system. Brilliant. And then is it true that this joint, the the degree of motion changes over time? You know, as we get older, does does it decrease or does it increase? The total range of motion, even in the most mobile people, all right, it's tiny anyway. Um, by the time you're my age, all right, if you're over 60, for example, right, and you're male, it probably doesn't move at all. Um, and so, um, uh, so as we age, the ability of that um, joint to move and to uh, absorb shock gets less and less and less as we age. That's a natural progression that we can't affect any more than we can stop our hair from going grey and falling out. So um, in case of people like me. So <laughs> unlike yourself, I can see you. Yes, yeah, not yet. I've got plenty not, of Not yet. You're not old enough yet, no. <laughs> so you've probably got a little bit of movement still in your sacroiliac joint, but I don't. Okay. And so that's that's normal. That's not that's not a painful phenomenon. It's just just a normal part of the process. Now it's also a very big difference between male and female too. Females um, have different, um, if you like, evolved requirements for the pelvis. <clears throat> they have to um, pass a, a large-headed baby through the bottom of the pelvis, and so that joint allows movement under certain pregnancy and birth, uh, vaginal birth delivery circumstances to actually literally give way. It actually relaxes, the ligaments relax, and in case, and if necessary, the ligaments will actually tear to allow that baby to get out. And so, um, so there is a, a fundamental difference between male and female. There's a little bit of difference in the shape of the pelvis, not a huge amount, but there is a difference uh, between male and female, but the flexibility um, of that joint is, of the sacroiliac joint, um, is greater in the female and during pregnancy is even greater still. And so, um, so there is quite a bit of variation between individuals, between genders, and, and in the case of women, whether you're pregnant or not. So it's, it's, uh, there's, there's a bit of, bit of variation there. But even right. in the pregnant woman, um, the, amount, the range of motion is still not huge. It's, t- it's still probably four degrees, maybe five. You know, it's not going to be much at all of rotation. Brilliant. So obviously we're here talking about, you know, this is the back pain podcast. We're talking about pain here. So 
the sacroiliac joint, you know, can it be a source of pain? You know, are there conditions that cause sacroiliac joint pain? Yes, it is a definitely a known uh, source of pain. And it's very, very important for um, people to understand that it's one thing to say that a joint or any structure for that matter it can and does cause pain and another thing to say that it doesn't move properly. It's a completely different st- um, way of looking at things. Um, if there are nerves in a structure, then it is capable of having pain for whatever reason. Um, you can injure it. Um, it can become infected. It can um, suffer um, inflammatory disorders. These sorts of things can cause a structure that has nerves to cause pain. And the sacroiliac joint does have nerves and it is known to cause pain. And we know that because when people come in with back pain and we put a needle into that joint and fill it up with anesthetic, the pain stops. And then when the anesthetic wears off, the pain comes back. Uh, And we can do that repeatedly and, and we know that that happens. So yes, it is definitely a potential source of pain. Um, the um, what causes it to be painful is a different issue again. That was my next question. So, <laughs> yeah, right. So you, so we, yes, we know that that structure, that tissue, the tissues involved in the sacroiliac joint can be painful, but what causes that? And of course, you can injure it. It is very difficult to injure the, the sacroiliac joint. Actually, it is the biggest. It has the biggest surface area of all of the joints. It's got more surface area than the hip, for example, um, and, and yet it has a tiny amount of movement, unlike the hip or the shoulder. Um, it has a very large surface area, very little movement, and very little volume. In other words, if you put a needle into the hip joint, you can put in. 30, 40, 50 milliliters of fluid in there and it just balloons out. It's got this big floppy ligament around it, holds everything to place in place and it, it's got a lot of volume in it. In the case of the sacroiliac joint, it's about two milliliters. So it's it's tiny. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big area but small volume space because it doesn't move much. So, um, so what, what we know is, is that what can cause pain is that you can sprain it, but if you, uh, but you, the, the amount of force required in a normal uh, unpregnant you know, female situation has to be significant. It has to be like a car accident where you've got your foot on the brake and you hit a brick wall or something. You know, that's the sort of forces required to actually injure it. And it's not unusual for the bones to break before you sprain the ligaments. Those ligaments are the strongest ligaments of any joint in the body. And so it's really difficult to sprain. So when people say, oh, I've I've, I've bent over and my my sacroiliac joint got sprained, rubbish. It's going to be something else. It's not the sacroiliac joint that sprains with those trivial forces. It's definitely not that. Now, it's different in the pregnant female. And the pregnant female um, constitutes probably 90% of all the cases of sacroiliac joints in the planet, on the planet, all right? Uh, most, uh, I would say, um, based upon work that we know of, maybe um, 55 or 60% of women who have pain during, back pain during pregnancy have pain from the sacroiliac joint. And the interesting thing um, about that is that sometimes that pain occurs spontaneously without injury in the first three or four months of pregnancy. So that is not an injury. There's no 
the, the, the size of the fetus, the baby, is not a mechanical factor. This is not a strain or a sprain pain that pregnant women get from their sacroiliac joints. This is something else. We don't know what it is that pregnancy does to the sacroiliac joint to make it painful. We don't know, but it does, and it can. And sometimes women who are having the third or fourth or fifth baby will say, "I know I am pregnant because my sacroiliac joint pain came back." before I even knew I was pregnant. And I've had it before, and it's exactly the same thing, and I knew I was pregnant. They, it happens very early on in some women. So that's a, um, that's a reality, and, um, and, uh, and we don't really understand that. Many hormonal changes occur, of course, uh, during pregnancy, and, of course, the body is preparing the woman's pelvis and body to... Um, deliver that baby, and then obviously to do to look after it afterwards. So, um, so that preparation, I imagine, those hormonal effects and other effects that are occurring during pregnancy, is what is doing uh, the job on the sacroiliac joint and causing it to be painful. Because it becomes more mobile um, during the um, during pregnancy, and especially in the latter stages of pregnancy, it is easier to sprain. So. Uh, if you fall on your buttock or something like that, if you and, and you are you know um, six or nine months pregnant or something like that, uh, and get back pain, then the chances of you spraining your sacroiliac joint are actually quite high. But in the non-pregnant human population, the sacroiliac joint almost never gets sprained, except when you have major trauma like a crush injury or like a shearing force, like in that yeah. motor vehicle accident that I described. Um, there are other conditions that cause the sacroiliac joint to be painful, and those are certain rheumatic conditions. Um, the, the, name, the words or the, the, the names given to those conditions are, um, have changed over the years. Um, you may have heard of words like ankylosing spondylitis and things like that. That's the most common cause of sacroiliac joint pain without injury in the non-pregnant population. And so um, we now have different words for those, and they're called spondyloarthropathies. But, but the reality is that there are inflammatory conditions, uh, like sort of a type of arthritis, if you like, that can, uh, that can uh, where the sacroiliac joint is primarily targeted by that disease process. And that affects a small, maybe 1% or 2% of the population, male and female. And so um, and it often appears in the... Uh, in the second or third um, decade of life. Um, we now have very good methods of treating these disorders compared to when I was first in practice. Um, and we don't see people who are, we see, do see people who are disabled by it, but much fewer than we ever used to because the medications that the doctors now have available are actually very, very good. And, um, and so the amount of, pain, distress, and disability associated with those diseases has fallen over the decades, um, So, which is a very nice thing. Um, the problem with those diseases is that it, occur, it gives you a symptom called back pain or a type of back pain, a buttock pain, that is indistinguishable for many, for most, um, between other sorts of back pain. And so these conditions, these inflammatory disorders become 
take years to diagnose. What usually it is well known, this is throughout the world, that um, the time from first presentation with back pain to a doctor to ultimately a diagnosis of spondyloarthropathy or ankylosing spondylitis um, is actually the average is seven years, which is huge. And it makes you sound, it is, but what actually happens is the first episode is a bit of back pain. So they go along to the doctor, I've got a bit of back pain. And the doctor says, oh, you've got a bit of back pain. So go and have a bit of physical therapy, go and see your chiropractor, go and whatever. And and so they go along and they get this treatment and these conditions, the symptoms come and go. So the patient gets better and then they, they don't have any further tests or anything else and then a year later they get something else again so they go back to the physiotherapist or the chiropractor or the gp who gives them some medication or they might have some manipulation or they might have some exercises or whatever and the pain settles down again now the pain is settling down not because of the treatment but because of the fact that they settle down if you don't treat them anyway so uh, and this fluctuating course just slowly gets more severe and more um, frequent until it becomes more consistent until somebody, some clinician will say, tell me your story. Oh, I've had this for six or seven years, you know, and it keeps on coming back and I go and see that. And they, they put, in other words, they connect the dots. And in the end they say, this sounds like the X, which is a rheumatic condition. And so they go and get blood tests and they see a rheumatologist and, oh, yes, you've got spondyloarthropathy. So that's why an average of seven years is the the truth. I think we can do better than that because I think we have the ability to uh, identify sacroiliac joint pain of non-traumatic origin um, earlier than uh, we used to believe. So... Um, so I think we can do better than that, but the, uh, that's the general rule. So just to summarise, you can injure it with major trauma. You can be pregnant and that will cause it. You can injure it in pregnancy and that can cause sacroiliac joint pain, or you can have an inflammatory disorder and that can cause pain. Yeah. So those are the primary causes of, yeah. the, of sacroiliac joint pain. Amazing. That's fascinating. So. I'd like to go back to, some, to something which you mentioned about, you know, the people who bend over and they've, you know, felt something, air quotes, go in their back and they've been told it's their sacroiliac joint. What is it like, you know, when something goes and it's not the sacroiliac joint, is that likely just to be a different joint in the spine that's then a little more likely to be a pain generator if it's not going to be the sacroiliac joint? I'm just thinking of the people who are listening to this who are, who are going, oh, but I, oh, mine comes from well, my sacroiliac this, joint. This is, an, this is an opinion and that's all I can say because... We, I can't point to any evidence to them as proof of this. And my, my belief is, is that in the vast majority of cases, the person who bends over or does some trivial thing and it goes ping and they get an acute episode of pain, that's discogenic. That's coming from the lumbar discs. Um, the facet joints are the other possibility in the back. Those are the little, the sort of uh, articulating joints in the back. They're called the facet joints. And um, I think the Americans call it facet joints. And, uh, and if you're an anatomist, you call it a zygopophyseal joint, but just call it a facet <laughs> joint, it's easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and these joints are, um, you can injure those joints pretty much the same as you could injure your finger. It's, uh, that happens all the time. It's not common, except in certain athletic and, um, activities, which have a lot of rotational force in them. Um, it's more common in the elderly. Um, as we age, those joints wear out and they're more susceptible to injury. 
and just simply um, degenerative uh, arthritis pain. So, so the acute onset pain is almost always um, discogenic. Okay. Well, not, 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 I would say 90% of the time. Yeah. Okay. That, that's excellent. Thank you. Um, so then, you know, the, we've, this might differ depending on the condition, but is there a typical sacroiliac joint pain um, that's, you know, different to other pains that you might know that it comes from the sacroiliac joint? Is it, a, is it a different place or is it a specific type of pain? Well, yeah, there is. The problem is, is that the pain that if you take a whole bunch of people with proven sacroiliac joint pain, in other words, you put a needle in there and you put anaesthetic in the joint, the pain has gone away. These people typically have pain over that knobby bit at the back on one side and into the buttock on the just sort of lateral to the sacrum. So it's in the buttock itself, deep in the buttock, but more towards the spine than out towards the hip. So it's close to the spine, in the buttock, from the um, that knobby bit, the posterior superior leg spine down. Most usually, uh, usually there's not a lot of back pain above the sacrum. And so that's typical of sacroiliac joint pain. However, Every other structure that can cause pain from the spine can refer pain to that area. So buttock pain is like the central point for everything. So if you have buttock pain, that could come from any one of those three major sources. It can come from, well, four sources, actually, the disc, the facet joint, the dura mater, which is a, 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 pain, a sleeve that covers the nerves, and the sacroiliac joint. So all of those things can cause that pain. So, um, so yes, sacroiliac joint tends to have that, what we call parasacral, that's lateral or just to the side of the sacrum, below the spine, the, the bottom of the lumbar spine. Um, it, that's, tends to where, that's where the pain is dominant and it can radiate down the leg. Um, but so can disc pain, so can dural pain, so can facet joint pain, you do exactly the same thing. So there's nothing unique about sacroiliac joint pain. It's just that sacroiliac joint pain doesn't cause pain to radiate up into the back. It can cause pain to radiate down just like everything else can, but doesn't radiate up into the back. So if it's going higher, yeah. Mm. So, so, so if it's going higher, it's not going to be that basically, yeah. Pretty much. If your dominant pain is in the is above the sacrum, then it's probably not the sacroiliac joint. If the dominant pain is in the buttock, it can be anything. <laughs> that's challenging how about movements and things then you know obviously because this joint doesn't move much so if we are you know pain with sitting and standing or bending or walking is that you know likely to point us more in one direction than another or again is that just a completely no, different no, you know? I, I don't believe i don't believe there's anything unique about um, about sacroiliac joint in terms of how it behaves. Um, all of the movements that will cause a disc or a facet or a nerve root to cause pain, those movements also stress the, lumbar, the sacroiliac joint too. So even though it doesn't move much, it puts load on it. So if it's sensitive, it'll hurt. So um, it's very hard to, to isolate, if you like, the sacroiliac joint in terms of movement. Um, in fact, that's why we have specific tests for that to try and do that, uh, to see if we can isolate the stress when we're trying to test certain structures. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and it's a process of mostly elimination that we, we arrive at the diagnosis. 
Uh, so once we've cleared all the things, more not, not more significant, but potentially more significant problems, then we can kind no, of no, arrive no, at a diagnosis. No, no, sacroiliac joint can be incredibly significant. You okay. can be on crutches with a sacroiliac joint. There's no no question about that. So okay. I don't I don't I don't I, I don't like saying that is a residue. That the saying is more significant. That's a residue from an orthopedic view. That to them the only pathologies that are real are the ones that they operate on. Yeah. All right. And which are nerve recompression, spinal stenosis and fractures and red flag conditions and things like that. Mm. So, um, so no, sacroiliac joint can be immensely, can be extremely disabling. I have, you okay, you will see regularly throughout your career people who are in wheelchairs or on crutches because of sacroiliac joint pain. Sounds sounds horrible, really. Then yeah, for when it's, oh, no, it's, it's really, it's really disabling. Bad. It is. It can be disabling, you know. And, and and your life is a misery, you know, because you can't can't ambulate. It's hard to work. You can't have sex. Um, there's many things that are put on hold when you have yeah. bad sacroiliac joint pain. That's that's fascinating. Thank you, Mark. So. I guess then the next bit then kind of brings us on to treatment. Um, and I guess if, if we rule out the inflammatory conditions, you know, if we under if we assume they're under the care of kind of a rheumatologist and, you know, and, and medication type conditions, if we go into the more, the, the pregnancy related SI pain and kind of the trauma um, related SI pain, are there treatments that we should be, that, you know, people should be doing? Is this an exercise based approach, a hands-on based approach? You know, what, you know, what things are we after? Okay, well, before we get onto that, I think it's very important to differentiate between the concept of sacroiliac joint pain and sacroiliac joint dysfunction. Please do. Uh, yeah, because um, sacroiliac joint pain we know exists because we put the needle in there, put the anaesthetic in there, and the pain goes away. So we, we know it's real. It's not, it's not some figment of the patient's or the clinician's imagination. Sacroiliac joint dysfunction is a concept that is used very loosely by many people, and I think inappropriately. The concept of dysfunction, simply the word itself means dysfunction or aberrant or um, altered pathological function. It means it's not moving properly or it's not positioned correctly. Those are the two things that, and you'll see all um, variations of uh, all different clinicians from physiotherapists to chiropractors to osteopaths to manual medicine doctors will all talk about dysfunction and they will talk about uh, and you'll hear words like anterior anonymous and upslips and downslips and all these things about faulty positions and faulty movement in that joint and that is a different thing, completely different from the concept of sacroiliac joint pain. Sacroiliac joint dysfunction is a diagnosis made manually by doctors who believe they can feel these tiny movements in the sacroiliac joint. The problem with that diagnosis is the fact that they can't. They, are, they believe they can do it, but they actually can't. You take two alleged experts in making that diagnosis of dysfunction and they will rarely, if ever, agree with each other. In other words, who's the expert? Right? I if totally agree. Um, thank two you for clearing that up. People who have been doing this for years, but one says it's an upslip and the other one says it's an anterior anonymous, who's right? 
maybe it's not a matter of who's right and who's the expert. It's a matter of maybe what they're feeling is something moving. And it's no question when you put your thumb on that knobby piece at the back and you get the patient to lift the leg up or you bend forward or you, you look at them, uh, look at the asymmetry of how it moves or whatever, when you, when you put your thumbs on, you can feel things happen. But the reality is, is that you've got your thumb on um, a bone, or I'm talking about this bony prominence at the back, uh, that's at the underneath that dimple that most people have in the back of their, uh, just on the top of their buttock there. Um, if you put your thumb on that, you've got your thumb on something that is about the same size as the point of your elbow. And that bone, which is about the size of your point of your elbow, is even in the skinniest person, is covered by at least an inch of fat and other moving tissues as they move. Now, if you believe you can actually reliably and consistently feel less than four millimetres or two or three millimetres of movement through a half-inch rump steak, as David Poulter would put it, all right, um, then you are having a dream. It's, it's, I'm sorry, but I was taught that stuff by Freddie Carltonborn and osteopaths and chiropractors and manual manipulative physiotherapists, and I used to teach that stuff. And I couldn't agree with my teachers and my students can't agree with me. I gave it up. I, I gave up cigarettes and I gave up that. To That's me, exactly. it's, just, it's just a hypothesis that has no uh, validity, either face validity or any other sort of validity. It's not real, in my opinion. It's my opinion. And I have a lot of evidence to support that. That doesn't mean that you, the next, if you're, if you're not a physiotherapist or a chiropractor and you're listening to this and you go along to your next person who will see you, there's about 50% chance that they will try to find the sacral electron dysfunction. And they'll say, oh, you've got a this or you've got a that and I need to mobilize or manipulate that in order to straighten it out. Um, I can honestly say that if you have true sacroiliac joint pain, then manipulation to it does not work. If manipulation works, actually does, if you lie on your side or on your back or on your tummy and the therapist or doctor manipulates that and makes it go clunk, it's not the sacroiliac joint that's moving, it's something else. And that's because it moves two millimetres. So, you know, that's... Well, no, but it doesn't, it doesn't gap like that. Yeah. To get a gapping, the actual amount of gapping that occurs in the sacroiliac joint is about a millimetre. It's not like the finger joint that you can go snap or the thoracic or the the facet joints that you can make go crack. It's nothing like that. It's not that sort of joint. I mean, it is a joint, and if you were able to get those enormously powerful ligaments to relax enough, which they won't, to cause a gap big enough to cause a... um, uh, Cavitation, which is what pop, yeah. the noise, um, um, to occur, you'd have to rip all those ligaments. That would cause a lot more problems than it would ever cure. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, yes, it sounds like it'd be a lot more painful as well. Actually, then you'd be very uh, painful seeing someone else. else. So, so the reality is, is that so? So, 
so I, I needed to be very, very clear about the difference between pain and dysfunction. They're not synonymous. They're not interchangeable concepts. One is an absolutely valid concept, and it leads to a concept of treatment, whereas dysfunction leads to a concept of treatment known to be ineffective for the people yeah. who actually have that disturbance of sacral joint pain. So let's let's be very clear yeah. that the diagnosis really matters and what you're what you're calling it. So if you hear the word sacroelectron dysfunction, then find another practitioner. So and that's the same for, you know, when people are talking about their pelvises going out of place or popping out of place and it's popped back in again. It it doesn't happen. It's it, it doesn't work like that. You know, these don't go out unless you have severe, severe, huge trauma. <laughs> okay. Let's be very clear also. There are occasionally patients that you will encounter as a clinician, and if you've got this problem, um, you have my deepest sympathies, um, uh, who have sacroiliac joint instability. It's, it does occur. It's rare. It does occur. I even remember the name, the circumstances, the cases the actual background history of the first person that I ever made that diagnosis on, and that was back in the early 1980s. And she, um, her name was Helen, and she was a five foot ten, strong, powerful woman, um, uh, you know, lean, muscular, all the rest of it. Um, and she had had four babies, and she had had problems with her back and sacroiliac joint areas uh, for many, many years. And when I lay her on her back and I put my hands on her pelvis and I just pushed on them, it went clunk, 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 clunk. And every time it went clunk, clunk, she goes, ow, 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 ow. Now, I was moving the sacroiliac joints and they were clunking and they were painful. Now, there is no conservative care that will solve that problem. Nowadays, there are minimally, minimal um, or less invasive surgical techniques of fusion to, to, solid, to, to bind those together again. But once those ligaments in the front of the pelvis, in the front of the sacroiliac joint in the bottom, once they're torn, and they can be torn with pregnancy, uh, with the vaginal births, uh, once they're torn, then they don't heal. And so the, you occasionally get really, truly unstable sacroiliac joints. In, in almost, I've never seen one, um, I've seen people with crush injuries where they have, they're lying on their back and something falls, like a concrete block will fall on them or a car rolls onto them or something like that, and they crush the pelvis. Well, they, they can have, obviously, instability. But yeah. I'm talking about, aside from those major trauma situations, women who have had babies and they've, they're, they're, the bottom of the pelvis, those ligaments have torn then they can become unstable. And they can be so disabled as to be in crutches, on crutches and wheelchairs. And they will not get out off those crutches or out of that wheelchair properly unless those joints are fused. And so that is a surgical technique. It is, should be reserved for a very small proportion of people with pain coming from the sacroiliac joint. Yeah. It's not something that should be done frequently. 
any any surgeon who is doing more than one or two of those a year is probably doing it too much. Oh, it's very, very rare then. You know, this is, yeah, this is. It's, it's rare. It is rare. I mean, there are a few surgeons throughout the world who focus on this area and they might do a few more than that. But if they're doing more than one or two of those a year, then they're, that's, they're doing too many. Yeah. Um, uh, there's not a lot of justification for surgical intervention in, in this case. One of the problems with treatment of the sacroiliac joint is that there are no studies that look at a cohort of patients with proven sacroiliac joint pain where different conservative treatments are compared. So if you had asked me, does manipulation work on sacroiliac joint pain? I can only tell you my own personal experience. And that is, is that every time I've believed that I've got a sacroiliac joint pain patient and I manipulate it, I either made them no better or I made them worse. So in my opinion, sacroiliac joint manipulation to sacroiliac joint pain is not effective. And it may well aggravate temporarily anyway. All right, now, but do we have evidence actual scientific proven evidence to, to, to validate what I've just said? And the answer is absolutely not. No study, to my knowledge, has ever been done on a cohort of people known to have sacroiliac joint pain where medication versus exercise, where manipulation versus medication, those conservative cares are things that you and I can do and physiotherapists and chiropractors and osteopaths and, and other conservative care clinicians can do, we don't know if it works. We simply do not know if it is effective or not. It's as simple as that. What's my opinion? The opinion is, is that there is a role for exercise, for stabilizing exercises, core strengthening, um, particularly using the lower um, oblique fibers of oblique, the, the bottom of the, um, the abdominal muscles, the transversus abdominal muscles with co-contraction of the multifidus, the, the, the standard um, trans-ab type of... Yeah, all the core, all those deep core, trans, deep trunk deep muscles. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it, yeah. And pelvic floor exercises, there's a, there's a, there's a role for that as well, particularly in uh, women who've um, who've had their problem associated with pregnancy. Um, so that sort of, that helps to hold, those muscles help to hold the pelvis together and stop it from wobbling around and irritating itself. So there is a role for that, exactly what that role is and how to select patients for that is still very much a matter of conjecture. I have my opinion, and I don't doubt that you, Rob, will have yours, but the, the reality is, is that we do not know because there is no research, not a single study. There are studies comparing, uh, or they're not, they're not comparative. There are studies that uh, look at putting hydrocortisone or a um, steroid uh, anti-inflammatory drug into the joint and that appears to be helpful in about 30% of cases. Now, the people would argue that that's no better than placebo, which, of course, is true. But the reality um, is, is that um, I don't think there are 
placebo-controlled trials. There may be, I'm not sure. Um, but, but the reality is, is that there are cases, particularly the spondyloarthropathy cases, where corticosteroid injection into the joint is dramatically effective, without question. And it is a good tool to have in your toolkit for those patients with, who have an inflammatory condition. All right, so um, and so and it and it, it doesn't last because if you have an inflammatory condition, you'll calm that down with a steroid, and the steroid will be in in, uh, in the area there for about maybe two three months at the most uh, before the body metabolizes that and gets rid of it all, and then slowly the inflammation comes back again. So you might get five six years relief at most, and then the pain will come back. So if you wanted to continue to treat with that steroid injection, you'd have to have it often, which is not a good idea. So, you know, it's, it's not such a bad idea if, if the, if the alt, alternative is to be walking around on crutches or not, what would you do? Yeah, so if it, if it allows you to function and pick up your children and, and move around. Okay, yeah. no, I'd say put up with it, you know. So, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a uh, we'll take some other inflammatory, anti-inflammatories by mouth, perhaps. You know, those are sorts of things for inflammatory conditions. So steroid yeah. ejection has a role. It must be done under guidance. That's by fluoroscope or CT usually. I prefer a, um, fluoroscope by a highly competent uh, person who's highly trained in that. Um, to me, it is a, is a highly technical uh, procedure. The failure rate of getting the needle into the sacroiliac joint um, is um, high. It is in the vicinity. Um, the man I did my, um, the radiologist who, who, with whom I did my PhD studies with, his failure rate was around 2%, which is the lowest I've ever heard. Um, most of the doctors that I work with here say their failure rate is in the 25 to 30% mark. Wow. It's actually technically difficult to get into. Yeah. Uh, because you, you have to you have to come in from the bottom. You cannot get it at it from the back. You can't. Because it's deep. It's 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 covered by yeah. bone. <laughs> yeah. And you can't get the needle in from the back. You have to come in from the bottom. And so you can get into the inferior recess. And that will um, yeah. that will get the needle in. So it's actually technically quite a difficult thing to do. So you need somebody who actually does it on a regular basis and who is known to be competent in that area. Otherwise, any old doctor can't do that. Yeah. So you said you know you felt there was a role for exercise in in kind of management of this pain. I believe so. Yes. Do you have a you know a go to? I'm guessing obviously more, a lot more than one, but you know, are there a typical series of exercises that you will typically lean on in the first instance um, to help with, with patients with confirmed, you know, SI joint pain or SI pain? Okay. Let, let, I must make, um, I must try, I'm trying to um, make sure I don't make claims I can't support. Okay. Yeah. Um, the reality is, is that the, Number of patients that I've seen with sacroiliac joint pain over the last 50 years is relatively small. Okay. I see them regularly. And because I practice in a, in a specialist capacity, I see them more often than the average um, primary care clinician. Um, but so I see multiples a year. But the reality is, is that it's still relatively a low prevalence condition. At primary care, of all the people with back pain, my estimate is that the prevalence of 
sacroiliac joint pain is about 7%. That is different from the published result, which says it's about 30%. And the pregnant population, it's probably over 50% of people with pain, back pain in pregnancy, it's more like 50%. But in the standard back pain population at primary care, it's probably around 7%. So seven out of every 100 back pain patients that walk in your door at primary care will have sacroiliac joint pain, in my opinion. So uh, those are the people who satisfy my criteria anyway. Okay, so that's uh, I know that for a fact because I've measured it. So it's a relatively low prevalence condition. And so, uh, so it's not common. Um, the... Um, uh, what was um, uh, why was I on that track? I've lost. Uh, we were on exercises. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so my ability to um, tell you about the effectiveness of exercise is limited by the low numbers that I see. That is my point. Yeah, and so I have a. I have. I was uh, during the nineteen nineties. I became um, quite a fan of the Queensland system, which is the trans-ab multifidus coordination thing, and um, Richardson and Hyde's and um, and uh, Hodgson and Jal. Their book I read, and and I uh, was very impressed by their research, and so I started doing that on back pain patients and people I believe to have sacroiliac joint pain. I would say 50% of the people that I thought had sacroiliac joint pain found value. It seemed to improve their pain. Practically nobody ever said it stopped their pain. Okay? But about 50% got some value from it. Then um, in the uh, early 2000s, I became uh, also interested in work by Stuart McGill, his core strengthening, what have you. So um, I thought that his was a very, very scientifically based exercise program. And so I started using that as well. And again, I don't think that changed the proportion of people who got better or improved um, but it, gave, it's like, it was like another string to the bow. And as far as I'm aware, there is no studies that have ever been done comparing one sort of core strengthening exercise versus another. So I don't think it matters whether you use Pilates, whether you use the Queensland system, whether you use a system devised by Andrew Vleeming and his, and his workers from the Netherlands, whether you use uh, Stewie McGill's material. And there are dozens and dozens of different styles. And I think it matters not a single, it doesn't matter a jot which one you use. So long as you do it, so long as you're, you're aware as a clinician, that you're aware that you're not just trying to make muscles strong. Strong people, powerful people, really powerful people still get back pain. So, in fact, they may even get more back pain than other people. Um, really strong people still get sacroiliac joint pain, and getting them stronger is almost impossible to do because they can they can lift mountains, you know. And so it's not about power; it's about when that muscle contracts. It's, in other words, you, it's a proactive contraction of those stabilizing muscles during movement. So it's, a, it's actually a coordination of muscle timing correctly 
And I think that the work by um, the Queensland people, that's um, Hodges and Hyde's and Jarl and, and Richardson, their work, I think, did tell us that these muscles must be proactively contracting as you move. What, we've, what we know is that people with back pain, any back pain, not just sacroiliac joint pain, that after they've had their first episode of back pain, that proactive behaviour of those stabilising muscles is disordered. And it, need, and it has to be retrained back again for it to be operating in a normal way. So I believe that, I still believe that that is probably a good concept. Whether it's true or not, I can't say. Yeah. And I guess, you know, that that's, you know, the fact of a lot of back pain. You know, we don't know. And, and you know, we know ask a any lot. clinician. We know, we a, know lot. a lot, we but there is a lot we also don't know. There is. Yeah, and it's a, and it's very hard for to to get that to get that across to to patients when they're sat in front of an expert asking questions. Um, you know, people listening to this expecting answers, hundred percent clarity to everything. And the fact is that for a lot of you know non-specific back pain, back pain, whatever you call it, you know, SI pain, you know, a lot of these things we don't have hundred percent of the answers. And you know, that's a fact. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's the one thing that we do know is that we don't know everything. We all the answers. If we had all the answers, we wouldn't wouldn't be core professionals. We'd be technicians. Yeah, that's important. And also, there wouldn't be an, a, a, a a huge burden of back pain in the population, I guess, either. You know, uh, I'm not even sure about that. You'd still have a lot of mechanics out there. Yeah, to be fair, <laughs> yeah, maybe you would. Listen, Mark, that you know that's been a, a a fascinating talk, kind of you know of a hugely complex area of 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 pain. You know, as we just said, there's no golden perfect you know this is what you need to do if you have si joint pain it's it's, it's much more complicated than that and I'm, I'm sure we've you know people listening to this will understand so you know really thank you very much for you know taking your you know very valuable time to to talk to us and our listeners on uh on this show you know we've busted some myths we've gone over some anatomy you know so hopefully people listening will have would have taken a lot away from that yeah so thank you so you're welcome no, brilliant. So I think that's it kind of from me. Where can people go to find out more about you? Are you on social media? Um, you know, what can people do if they want to look you up? Well, the people can follow me on Twitter. Um, 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 I, I'm, a, um, I'm part of the Twitterati, I suppose. Um, so, yes, I do that pretty much every day. Um, I have a Facebook presence. I have a personal page. Um, I uh, conduct online courses for uh, healthcare professionals. Um, and uh, f- um, my courses target primarily the low back, although I do have one course on actual di- on the science of diagnostic accuracy. And um, but um, but most of my stuff is on the low back. One of one of the courses that I teach has on the sacroiliac joint. Um, but an actual fact, um, by the time 2021 is finished, I think there will be something like 10 back pain related courses. So enough, a lot out there. Yeah, Southern Musculoskeletal Seminars is the uh, online um, platform that I um, that I work with, and um, I'm no longer involved in. I myself and Dr. Angela Cadogan um, started up Southern Musculoskeletal Seminars, but I've decided I'm getting old and she's taken over, so I'm, <laughs> I just provide content now. So um, so I'm just a, just a teacher now, but. Um, and I do travel, um, you know, um, although under COVID-19, that's not going to happen until next year, probably. No. But, um, uh, but no, I do a lot of teaching still and I still see patients. I don't, I only, I'm only in the clinic um, one day a week and, um, and I report for another, another one day a week. And then the rest of my time I'm working, still working pretty much full time on um, postgraduate education of, mm. of clinicians on 
back pain, pretty much. And so for the people who haven't picked up your accent, whereabouts are you in the world? I'm in New Zealand. We're in that funny place. Um, we, we, did you know that New Zealand has um, three major islands? We have a North Island and a South Island and a West Island. I did know that, yes, yeah. Yeah, the West Island, is a, some people call that Australia. <laughs> That's what <you> mean. <laughs> I love that. How many times have you have you been using that joke for 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 fifty years now? Oh, we love the Australians. The Australians and New Zealanders like to like to um, um, have fun with each other. Yeah, I know they're, they're they're best of friends, really, aren't they? Best of enemies and best of friends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Well, listen, Mark, thank you ever so much for joining us. Um, well, I'll link all of the, the things you've just described, your Twitter and social media and courses, all in the, in the show notes. For anyone listening, they can um, um, check them out if they, wanna, if they want to look you up. So thank you. That's it from me. We've been the Back Pain Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I hope everyone has a great evening. Thank you. Good night. Good night.